So first of all, just a quick recap um, from what Stuart spoke about last week. So this is the statement um, that's in the care booklet that where we found these seven statements where they summarize the Evangelical Alliance statements. The first one, creation, says this, God's design for humanity and the world, as revealed in Genesis, is good and helps us flourish. Every human is created in the image of God and has value, innate value and dignity and has been given responsibility to steward the earth. So that was what Stuart was talking about last week. And as I said, we're going to follow on this week with this idea of creation. Uh, sorry, with this idea of fall. Um, so we're a quick summary again. We were made in God's image. We were made to be like him. We're loved by God and we're created for relationship with him. And we're called, it says, to steward the rest of creation, to look after it. And... Um, I know there are some scientists in the room, so I've got to be really careful the way I say this, but um, I think a, a good way of looking at this is something called symbiosis. I hope I've said that correctly. But basically, it's, a kind of, it's an illustration of God's perfect design for creation, as far as I'm concerned. So this is something that you have to do in science, okay, when you're in primary school. So it's something I have taught, but in a very simple way. So you'll have to forgive those of you that are clever and know about science. You have to forgive my explanation. The rest of us, you're going to love it. Symbiosis, it says, is defined as a close, prolonged association. So that's a relationship between two or more biological species. And this relationship can be symbiotic, mutual, where both parties involved benefit from the interaction. Okay? Another really good way of looking at it is this picture book, <laughs> which is called Just You and Me. And it's about all the remarkable relationships, well, not all of them, but many of the remarkable relationships that exist in the world. And here's one of them. So originally, the children were going to stay in the service, which is why I included this, but we're going to enjoy it together anyway. This is just, this is just one illustration from the book. Um, and this is a Nile crocodile. And the, the story is written in poetry, but it, um, it summarises this kind of a bit of science, if you like, this symbiosis, this idea that we're there to mutually benefit one another. And the Nile crocodile says this, I jump inside, sorry, the bird says this, I jump inside your sharp-toothed grin and feast upon the food within. Your teeth get cleaned, I get a meal. I'd say that's a dazzling deal. Okay, and the little explanation, the bit of science at the bottom says, when the Nile crocodile needs to have its teeth cleaned, it opens its mouth wide. The Egyptian plover bird hops right in, cleaning the croc's teeth and gums while getting a meal in the deal. And so the idea is that we exist in harmony with our creation. That's how God intended things to be. But we all know the story and how it continues and that actually it all just went wrong. And Steve's going to come and read Genesis 3 to us, which will tell that story. Thank you. Okay, you, if you, you're clicking, I'll do reading. Okay, so, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the snake, no, no, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden 
and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the true from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat the food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing to and fro to guard the way to the tree of life. Thank you, Steve. Okay, so that's the next bit of the story. It's serious, isn't it? It's serious stuff. So to help us to sort of understand this idea of fall, I want to refer to a book that I read first actually quite a long time ago, quite a few years ago. can't remember exactly when it was published. I want to say definitely before the pandemic. Um, it's by a guy called Pete Hughes. It's called All Things New. It's quite heavy going, but I would recommend that you read it if you're interested, if you want to read it. 
He talks about uh, creation and he talks about fall and he talks about Jesus making all things new for us in this way. This is a really helpful diagram for us to look at, to understand. So he talks about creation, decreation and recreation. And in creation, God created the world and everything to live in it in perfect harmony. The idea of symbiosis, everything living in perfect harmony with one another to be loved by God and to be in relationship with him. But then along comes decreation. So that's the breakdown of creation, which began to happen when sin came into the world, when Eve and Adam made those choices that we just heard about. And that's the focus that we're going to have today. And then also Pete talks about recreation, which we'll come on to in a little while. So the first thing that we need to think about is how it all began. And how it all began was that Eve listened to the wrong voice. So in Genesis 3 verse 1, we read this. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say? How often have you heard that voice? So often I think we sort of kid ourselves, don't we, that the voices that we hear all around us, um, the way that we think and we feel and behave, that those voices are reasonable. So often when it comes to daily life, we think that it's okay to listen to those voices, those voices that say, did God really say that? Is that really the truth? But actually, we need to remain in relationship with our Father God so that we could hear his voice. And even Adam listened to that other voice, didn't he? He allowed himself to be swayed by a voice, by someone else who'd listened to the wrong voice. Eve listened to the voice of the serpent saying, did God really say that that was the truth? She even answered him. Yes, he did say that, but she still went and ate the bit of fruit. And then Adam listened to Eve. Did God really say, he thought to himself? And he listened to the wrong voice. Colossians 2 says, um, verses 2 to 4 and then verse 8 says my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments fine sounding arguments like did God really say how many times have you heard someone say something like that to you? And then verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Did God really say that that's right? Is that really what God meant? Is that really the truth? So whichever voices you're listening to, whether it's your own or someone else, just bear in mind what is inspiring that voice. Some arguments might sound fine. They might sound reasonable. Did God really say that? Isn't it this way rather than that way? But actually, some arguments will deceive you about God's best for your life. Some ideas and philosophies, Colossians tells us, are just plain and hollow. They're just rubbish. They're deceptive. And quite often they just come out of our own or other people's feeble imaginations. But some of them come from those elemental spiritual forces. Some of them come from the enemy. And that was Adam and Eve's experience, wasn't it? With the serpent 
representation there of the devil. Did God really say? When Stuart taught on that passage in Colossians back in the summer last year, he talked about how the, de the deception for the Colossian Christians was coming from within their own community. It wasn't just outside forces. It wasn't just outside of the, the church community or the Christian community. It was actually from within, not just friends or family or the culture around us. I think sometimes it can be easy for us to blame the enemy. It can be easy for us to say, you know, well, it wasn't Eve's fault. It was the snake that tempted her. It wasn't my fault. I was tempted by something else. It wasn't Adam's fault. He just copied Eve. But we have autonomy, don't we? We have free will. We have a choice as to whether we'll go God's way or not. The culture might tell us that it's okay to knock off work a little bit early. No one will notice. doesn't matter. Actually, that's not true. It's stealing, isn't it? If we nick time from work. And it's God's work that he gave us to bring glory to him. He tells us in scripture to do it diligently as though we're working for him. Culture and our friends will tell us how we treat others and what we do in our relationships are our own business. We don't need to answer to anyone else. We need to make sure that we get what we want from a relationship. We need to make sure that we get what we need. Maybe we only ever pursue friendships with people who tell us good stuff about ourselves and don't ever pull us up when we go wrong. Or maybe we blank and ignore people that we find tricky or challenging. Maybe we pursue intimacy, whether it's sexual or romantic, with people that we're not married to. But God tells us a different story. Did God really say? Yes, he did. He said that we're made in his image, that he loves us, that he created us for relationship with other humans, that leads to our flourishing and to the flourishing of others. But that means laying down our own selfish agendas and ultimately living as Jesus did with his own friends, laying down our lives and loving one another as he loved us. And just like Eve in the garden that day, the voices that we listen to have a real impact on our thinking on our thinking and how we live our lives. Do you remember this book? Stuart read it on sabbatical and then a few of us read it afterwards. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. In this book, Louis Giglio wants to remind us that if we've let the enemy have a seat at our table, then it's likely that that's the voice that we're listening to. Did God really say that you didn't, shouldn't eat that fruit? Did God really say that that's what you need to do to draw close to him? That table was set before us by God himself, and it's for our growth. It's for the growth of our relationship with him so that we can be fed by him, so that we can listen to him and not the voice of the enemy who wants to destroy us. And so if we're listening to the wrong voices, we can expect there to be an impact. And that's what we're just going to explore now. The impact of listening to that wrong voice, those wrong voices. The impact of what happened to Adam and Eve, but also the impact on us. That decision of all humankind to turn our backs on God, to listen to a different voice. And we're going to have a look at four different verses in Genesis Three. We're going to start at verse 15, if you've got it open in front of you. If you haven't, don't worry. I'm going to read it out. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There'll be enmity between us and creation. 
you remember earlier I told you about symbiosis? Can you remember what it means? Blank looks. <laughs> it said that it was a close, prolonged association between one species and another. Do you remember the plover bird going inside the crocodile's mouth, getting a meal, cleaning the crocodile's teeth? That was God's plan for creation. That was God's plan for... Um, that was God's plan for us and for all of creation would, would be that we would live in harmony with one another. And what I didn't tell you is that there's a second type of symbiosis, which is not quite as friendly as the first type. And I think it kind of sums up the damage that has been done between us and our relationship with creation. See, the second type of symbiosis is parasitic. In other words, it's a parasite. Something becomes a parasite on something else. So one species benefits, but the other one is harmed. Funnily enough, that picture book doesn't highlight that. <laughs> Maybe they need to write a second version of it. And so instead of living in harmony with all of creation, all living things, plant and animal, now as humans, we live at loggerheads with it. We live in a negative relationship with it. We are in parasitic symbiosis. In other words, we're parasites on this planet because we're out to exploit and get what we can, no matter what the cost. I know those are harsh words, but I think if you only have to watch the news for a few minutes to understand the reality of that. And so that was one thing that happened as a result of listening to the wrong voice and the impact of the fall, enmity between us and creation. And then verse 16 says this, to the woman he said, and this is God talking, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so another result, another impact of it all going wrong and not listening to God's voice is pain and suffering in our own relationships with other people. It was central to Jesus' teaching, if you, you, know, you read what he talked about in the New Testament, that we should love one another, wasn't it? But that's not a love that we manufacture or that we model in our own image. It's a love that's modeled in God's image. Otherwise, that's all where it goes a bit wrong, isn't it? I did a bit of research and I tried to discover what percentage of the New Testament gives teaching on human relationships and I couldn't find it as a percentage. It doesn't, well, maybe it does exist out there, but I just haven't found the right, right book. But if you just look at the letters in the New Testament, if you just look at Paul's letters, you discover that nearly every single one of them has something to say about human relationships, about the way that we handle human relationships, the way that we speak to one another, the way that we are with one another. Every single one of them has some words about God's heart for human relationships. Some of them are totally devoted to how believers should organize themselves in terms of their relationships one with another. And some of them talk about how we should relate to people more widely. We've got pain and suffering in our relationships as a result of not listening to God and of turning our backs on him, just like Adam and Eve did. Verse 17 says, To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. Work and life got a whole lot harder 
because of that decision. Adam took that decision to listen to Eve's voice and Eve had been listening to the wrong voice. And suddenly creation is now broken in a very serious way. And that affects everything. I wonder if there's a link here to that sort of negative idea of symbiosis, that parasitic symbiosis, that idea that one species sucks the life out of another species. I wonder if actually that's part of the fall. Maybe that's not what God intended at all. I'm just speculating. Like I said, I'm not a scientist. I don't really know. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we see how God gave Adam and Eve and all of humanity the role and the responsibility of caring, not just for the Garden of Eden, but for the whole earth. I was listening to a podcast this week called Strange New World, and a, a guy called Matthew Myers Bolton was talking about um, this idea that we're to care for the earth. He described it this way. He said, it's care, not enslavement. The role of hospitably helping the earth to thrive. But on conversation with the serpent, we came to distrust God and turn away from our role to serve. Not only the ground, but the whole biosphere, which we were called to shepherd. So that the conditions that were, maintained, were meant to be maintained for it to thrive didn't live. So a huge part of turning away from our calling to steward and care for the earth is the climate crisis. So I wanted to get some up-to-date information about this and this idea that work and life got harder because our relationship with creation has broken down and, and the climate crisis. I had a little look at something called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change there you go, that makes for fascinating reading. It was many thousands of pages, but thankfully I found this soundbite which is going to help us to understand it a little bit. It says, wealthy countries grew rich on fossil fuels, using them to power homes, transport, industries and agriculture. But burning coal, oil and gas produces greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide. The, the increasing level of these gases in the atmosphere trap heat similarly to the glass roof of a greenhouse. The effects are devastating. Heat waves, floods and droughts are wrecking lives, homes and livelihoods. If we don't do something about the climate crisis now, the future of our humanity and our planet is under threat. More glaciers will melt, sea levels will rise, and crops and wildlife will be endangered. Many parts of our world will be uninhabitable with less land to grow food. That's pretty stark, isn't it? That is pretty stark, and that is as a result of us listening to that wrong voice. Did God really say? Yes, God did really say. And those of us that have turned back to God by putting our trust in Jesus, we have to accept this responsibility of following that call on our lives again, to be gardeners, to be shepherds of the earth. And that doesn't just mean in our own little spot right here. It doesn't just mean in our own little back garden. It means in the choices and the decisions that we make every day. We have to take on this task of working to reverse the damage that's been done and caring for the planet in other ways. Not only so that it remains for future generations, but actually so that it continues to glorify God because that's what we've been called to do as stewards of the earth. This week, Stuart and I worked on the eco-church survey, surveys and we discovered that as a church, we're already well on our way to, um, to taking on some of this responsibility. So according to a lot of the surveys, we're in what's called the silver category 
which is really encouraging. But before we pat ourselves on the back and give ourselves some sort of sticker or badge, we just need to know that we've still got work to do. We've resumed this responsibility as God's gardeners, but we can't sit back and rest yet. There's work to be done. And we'll talk about it more at the next church meeting. So ecological lecture over. We're going to turn our attention to the next verse. Finally, verse 23 says this. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And so we are separated from God, banished from the garden. Isaiah 59, 1 to 3 says this. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities, your sin, have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And just like Adam and Eve were separated from God by having to leave Eden, so we too are separated by our sinful nature and choices. And this isn't because God hates us. It's not because he wants to hurt us, but it's because he's perfect and sinless and therefore he can't be anywhere near sin. Just like we reflected at communion at the beginning of this month, there is hope. We can confess our sin. We can come to him in repentance and we can remove, he can remove that separation and we can return again to a right relationship with God in whose image we're made, who loves us and who we're made to worship. There is hope. Just going to draw your attention back again to this idea of creation, decreation, and recreation. So as Pete described, creation, God made the world. He made us to look after it. He made us to love him and to worship him. Decreation happened. The fall happened. We were separated from God. But then there's hope. And Pete writes this. Recreation. Our story is of God making his home with us, healing and restoring every aspect of brokenness in this world he has given us as our home. The narrative closes with a vision of heaven descending. This is from Revelation. Um, a vision of heaven descending and God making his dwelling place amongst humanity on earth, just like he had done in Eden. Then seated on his throne, indicative of his work being finally complete, the creator declares, see, I am making all things new. The meaning of this profound statement is lost for many through the translation from Greek into English. The Greek has two words for new, neos and kainos. Neos is something that's brand new, like when you buy a new car that's never been driven before. But kainos is something that's old and has been made new. So like when you get your car fixed at the garage and it drives like new, that's what it feels like. And so Pete writes, when John has this vision of God making all things new, he chooses the word kainos. The world God created, the world he so loves that he would send his only son to die for, isn't banished to the garbage heap so that God could create a new and improved version. Instead, it is recreated or restored. And suddenly, within the twinkling of an eye, death, grief, crying, pain will belong to the past. Just like Eden, where sin, sickness and suffering had no place, God's renewed heaven and earth will be a place where all of creation can flourish. 
the message of Revelation 21 to 22 comes through loud and clear. God is in the business of renewing all things and restoring creation, including the humanity he made in his image and his likeness. And how does he do this? Well, I think we know. 1 Peter 2, 24 talks about the cross, which we all know so well. It tells us this. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In his work on the cross, Jesus took upon himself not only the sins of all humans, not only our sins, but also the separation from God that should have been ours. He received that separation in his own body. He received in his own body the consequences of the fall, the consequences of that choice that Adam and Eve made, but also that we make every day. He received within his own body that decreation, that breakdown of creation so that we wouldn't have to take it upon ourselves. And he undertook and he continues to undertake the work of recreation. That's something that we're going to look forward to in some of the subsequent statements that we're going to look at, the we believe statements. Um, number four is kingdom, about Jesus being on earth. And number five, salvation, Jesus' death and resurrection. And so as we draw our time to a close, we're just going to take a moment to pause and reflect on three things. We're going to pause and reflect on the choice that Eve and Adam made that day in the garden it, as one that's mirrored by all of us every day when we turn our backs on God. We're going to, repause, sorry, we're going to pause and reflect on the consequences to that decision, the consequences for our own relationships for the earth that we've been called to care for and for our relationship with God. And we're going to pause and reflect that there is hope in Jesus' death on the cross and in his defeating death and rising again to life. So let's take a moment of quiet to think about these three things and then we'll pray together. <clears throat>